it's lights out and away we go. Podcasting from Studio 2520, somewhere near Akron, Ohio, and live via fiber optics from the campus of Otterbein University. This is Tackling the Chicane. Okay. We're back in action. Back in action. Uh, a bit of a, a lull in the uh, process here, but uh, busy schedules and whatnot. But I think, is this 13? This is episode 13, lucky number 13. We shall see. Hopefully. If the soundboard uh, gods say so. But 13, you of never course. know. Yeah, we've got a episode uh, stocked full with excitement today. Uh, we're going to get into uh, a little bit of F1 2023 talk as the new calendar has been released. Uh, we're also going to take a little foray, I suppose, into the world of IndyCar, but it all connects back to F1 with Colton Herta and his... Uh, I suppose attempt at joining F1 or the possible the possibilities of that happening. Um, maybe box box. I'm not sure. Uh, on the soccer side of things, we're gonna dot run it back from almost two weeks ago with Tottenham versus Leicester pre international break, um, and then we're gonna discuss. The final match before the World Cup for the United States men's national team as they took on Saudi Arabia in a friendly. Before we get into all of that, we have to start the podcast with some bad news. Uh, Nicholas Latifi, his head has rolled from Williams. So the question is, uh, will he land somewhere uh or will he go back to uh formula two what what say you uh he's done <laughs> i'll just make that clear right away he is well, he done terrible. he is done from any formula i would imagine um i don't know where he goes next i don't foresee him being like an indycar guy or really any other open wheel series. I'm sure he won't completely leave racing at his young age, but yeah, you will not see him in any big time series again. I can't imagine. We'll have to see where the dominoes fall. Um, next season is going to be intriguing at best uh, to see the teams and what drivers land on which teams and that's the great thing about this series is when they start over again, um, it's almost like a new day. Yeah, and, and this season in particular has brought a, a lot of changes or changes that will be coming. Um, Williams are just one of a few teams that don't have a set driver lineup for next season. Um, there's a lot of big names that 
their future's kind of in the balance right now. Plenty of changes uh, will happen in the off season, and that will give us um, much conversation, hopefully. Yeah, I hope so. And hopefully um, it'll bring some more competitiveness to the season of next year. Uh, let's just dive right into next year. As about a week ago now, uh, Formula One announced their 2023 race calendar. And for most of our audience who I presume live in the United States of America, you're going to notice right off the bat that there are not one, but not even two, three dates in America next year. Yeah, so I've got uh, a couple of points here, bullet points for next year. Uh, there'll be a record number of uh, Grand Prix in 2023. We will have 24 races. And China and Qatar are going to return to the series uh, after a brief um, non-showing. So that will be interesting in itself. Uh Vegas is a Saturday night uh, race. Uh, Miami is 5-7-2023. Austin, 10-22-2023. And then Vegas, 11-18. So a little bit of a stretch between the first USGP in May and then Austin in uh, October, Vegas, uh, to follow about three weeks later, uh, I have an asterisk, asterisk, asterisk. <laughs> yeah, close enough. Close enough. Uh, subject to circuit, uh, they have to basically, F1 will go down there at some point and they will have to uh, make sure that the circuit is correct and proper, which shouldn't be, a, uh, it's more of a formality, I think, at this point. Um, the race is going to happen. It's probably going to be one of the more attended races. Uh, Vegas always draws a big crowd. So if, for example, if Miami tickets minimum were 600, I believe that the Vegas race will probably be unobtainable <laughs> to the normal uh, spectator as far as ticket sales. Yeah, you can pretty much bet that most of your working class uh, is going to be priced out when Formula One goes stateside for sure. Um, yeah, I don't really know much in the ways of what this circuit's going to look like other than that it'll be, of course, a street race down the strip. Um, the weather shouldn't, I can't imagine being much of a factor in November, especially at night. An interesting thing about that is you might be wondering why it's a Saturday night. Uh, Vegas is pretty much far enough away from the majority of Formula One's core audience that if it were to happen on a Sunday in Vegas, that would be a Monday morning slash afternoon for most of the world. So 
That's why well, it's on a yeah. Saturday. That's a jet out day for folks that frequent that city. Um, I'm just, I'm curious to see, and I know what's going to happen is every room in Vegas is going to be three times the price because there's going to be several uh, viewpoints depending on where you're staying. Uh, there'll be several suites, uh, hotel rooms, et, et cetera, will, where you'll be able to watch the race basically, you know, from your hotel. So uh, it'll be great to see how that all plays out because this is like the very first time they've been in Vegas and uh, good for the city, I think. I think it'll be uh, something that's probably going to continue. We don't, you know, in the States, we don't have very many um, glitzy places to go like a lot of these other venues. So um, I feel like it's going to be epic at, at the least. And I'll be happy to watch it from the couch. Yeah, I, I, the wallet will be happy too. Uh, let me pose a question to you that I think a lot of people are asking. Um, is three races in one country too many in uh, a season? I don't think so. When you consider how the U.S. has tried to get back into this series, I, I see it as a positive, and we deserve to have uh, more than one race. You know, so Miami was a, a success. Texas has always been a, a success. I think that Vegas will, will uh, carry the same weight. Um, and I don't, I don't subscribe to the theory that a lot of these F1 teams, that if they water down the series by doing more races uh, in the United States, I, I don't buy into that. I think we deserve to have some stature in the series. Yeah. Um, I, I think the country is large enough to justify the three races. Um, and, you know, you look at all these European dates. I mean, sure, there's there's some minor cultural differences between some of these countries in Europe. But I mean, we have Belgium and the Netherlands back to back round 14 and 15. Like, <laughs> I mean, that's, that's almost as if, I don't know, you had uh, a race in Ohio and Michigan, you know, like obviously language difference sort of. Uh, but I mean, Europe in itself kind of functions or at least the eu kind of functions as one country anyways and to quote you know a movie from the 90s if you build it they will come of course so i i think it all three races will be successful um i feel like it's it's store sort of escalating and it's where 
to go back to only having one American team in this series, and I think that's going to change. I hope it will change. And that, that kind of carries us to the next subject. But, you know, the U.S. deserves more than one team in F1. Yeah, I mean, I think they, I think their F1 would be smart to have a team that truly embraces that American identity and most importantly puts an American driver in a car. Uh, Of course, Haas kind of, you know, uh, identifies with that American thing, but uh, being basically a a Ferrari outfit with a German and Danish driver um, with a German Italian team principal, you're not really, not really an, an American team other than the fact that the guy who pays for everything is American, you know? True. And, Let's talk a little bit about Michael Andretti and the Andretti Autosport legacy. That is, you know, Mario Andretti was a F1 champion. And albeit, you know, maybe 50 plus years ago, um, they deserve a shot. And I had done a little bit of research and found out that there was a failed attempt for Michael Andretti to to buy Alfa Romeo's team several years ago. Um, so they are they're all in, and they have backers, and they have money. And dare I say that should Andretti be allowed to create an F one team? that they might surpass or, you know, not might, they will surpass Haas just with their structure, the the talent, the money. They need a chance. And that kind of brings me to the, the whole Colton Herta super license discussion. Um, and it's it's complicated, but I feel like they should be given the opportunity. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of a whole can of worms when it comes to all of that. Um, I guess the first point I would want to make there with Andretti is if Gene Haas can get a team in F1, I don't see why... Michael Andretti and the Andretti dynasty, I suppose, can't get in. Um, And if that day comes, I would be pretty confident in saying that they would have a much larger budget than Haas, um, just based off of what I've seen. And there's been sour grapes from the FIA because the, the teams that are racing F1 don't want to dilute the prize pot with extra teams, which I think is bullshit. <laughs> so basically what they're saying is if we, if we 
invoke another team, then that cuts our share of of winnings, which is bullshit. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I think it's more a case of concern on their part that Andretti might come in and be super competitive, which would be a a good thing. I don't see that as a bad thing, but mm-hmm. some of the some of the the teams in F one that have been around for you know centuries or a century at least, they're concerned about the the dilution of the winnings, which I think is kind of silly. Yeah, it's it's all political at the end of the day, but just transitioning into the super license discussion. Obviously, we know Andretti has said if he were to get a team, Colton Herta would be his guy uh, from IndyCar. Um, I think a lot of the discussion comes around this idea that there are a certain amount of points you can get from competing in different series of racing for the super license basically created so that I don't guys like Lance Stroll can't really just walk in. Of course, Lance Stroll is in formula one, but trying to get rid of guys just buying their way to a seat. Um, and you get a certain amount of points. It never is what happens anyhow. That's, yeah, you know, follow the money, follow the 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 cash. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you could get enough points and still not be that great of a driver. Uh, what I really wanted to focus on was, so there's a system, and I don't have the numbers in front of me, but there's a system of of points that are awarded through different series, and I know that. Um, you have to have 40 points through three seasons um, of a series uh, to get into F1 to have, you know, enough points on your license for that. And Colton Herta had 32, so he was short anyways. But the conversation goes around that actually the FIA is valuing Formula 2 higher than IndyCar on their points scale. Yeah, so I have uh, how to get a super license in front of me, and there's six bullet points, and I'm not sure that I need to read them all, um, but I can. Um, the The other point is... The current system of how to acquire a super license is a result of the Toro Rosso hiring, uh, which was the precursor to AlphaTauri, had hired a 17-year-old Max Verstappen. And so they changed... Uh, the point system based on the fact that you can't just hire a 17 
year old driver. Um, yeah. And that's how this kind of all came about. And it, it's, it's a lot of hierarchy, I guess, but, um, you know, it's about passing the FIA theory test. Uh, driver needs to have completed 80% of two full seasons in any single seater championship. Uh, accumulated at least 40 points over the previous three seasons in any combination of cedar single racing, uh, so on and so forth. So it's kind of a bunch of semantics, basically. I say if Andretti Autosport has the backing and can provide the same quality of racing that, say, a Haas has done, then let's go yeah and i i just feel like there's a a bit of uh injustice in of course this is the fia system that they've created and they want to value their series uh higher than others i i just think there's an injustice in valuing Formula 2, which is a junior series over IndyCar that has not only uh, former F1 drivers, but, you know, seasoned veterans of IndyCar that I think if they hopped into a Formula 1 race would, you know, be competent at the very least. Um, I I just, I find it hard to believe that you would rate... um, someone that came, I don't finish P4 over a season in F2 over a guy like Colton Herta, who is, you know, driving in a fully professional senior level competition that arguably, uh, maybe not harder than F1, but there's more diversity of racing. Uh, you have your street, your road courses, and then your, you know, your speedways, your ovals. I just, I don't understand how they could actually rate F2 higher than IndyCar. As it stands, uh, as you said, 32 out of 40 points for the super license. And let's not forget, Colton Herta has seven wins and nine poles in his career at Indy. So he, he deserves a chance. Yeah. For sure. And what do you make of, of the some of the rankings of these these series? Uh, I just want to hear your thoughts on. I think in, according to the system, IndyCar is ranked like the fourth highest series in the world. I don't is that do you think that's a, a fair valuation of the quality of the series? I think it is when you consider open wheel racing and that IndyCar is far more competitive than F1 in that, you know, we see a diversity of, of points, positions, and not necessarily podiums, but yeah, I, I, I think a hundred percent that IndyCar doesn't get the, 
the proper respect that it deserves as far as the series that it is. Um, but we're also talking about two completely different leagues and it kind of, in my mind, it plays into the soccer realm where I'm still trying to figure out all of the diversity in leagues and the, the changing of players. It's not nearly that complicated. It's actually pretty simple. And um, I think if a, if a driver shows promise in the IndyCar League and is, you know, competitive and has results, and if he has the, the team that can back him to go to an international series like F1, then they absolutely deserve to be there. And I, I can't say one way or the other how that's decided. I think that F1 is more open now than it was five years ago. I don't like the argument about diluting the, the pot money or the, the racing money that comes for victory. I think that, you know, we deserve our place in this series and we deserve to have more than one U S team in F1. Yeah. I mean, I guess it all comes down to, uh, you know, what you believe in, but, um, yeah, there's certainly in my eyes, a pretty compelling argument for a, a guy like Colton Herta to, you know, join Formula One in any sort of capacity. Um, and he said that, you know, he didn't want to be an exception to the rule. If he didn't get 40 points, you know, that he didn't get it. But um, I don't know. I just feel like let a young talent that's had three or four seasons of IndyCar at this point and has proven to be competitive in that series certainly deserves a chance in Formula One. But uh, that's where I'll leave it with that topic. Agreed. Agreed. And I, I don't have a technical box box, but I will um, shill for the uh, issue of the road and track October slash November issue is one that if you don't already subscribe, pick it up at the newsstand. It is just chock full of all forms of racing. Mostly it's kind of dialed in on F1. I mean, Seb is on the, on the cover. So there's a great article about Sebastian Vettel. Uh, There's several, they did kind of an A to Z in F1. They talk about Zach Brown. They talk about uh, a bunch of other uh, up-and-coming drivers. So if you're not a reader of that type of magazine, this is an issue that you should definitely pick up if you're a race fan because there's so much information just in this one issue, and it's very well done. There's super good photos in there. Um, just a great, great issue. So I'm going to, I guess I'll shill for road and track for a bit, but probably I've been a subscriber for over 25 years. And this is one of the notable issues. Uh, one that I'll save, uh, 
you know, definitely. So sweet. Um, one last thing in terms of Formula One before we move on. We do have a race this uh, Sunday, October 2nd in Singapore. Um, and I just wanted to go over, we're at the point in the season, like it or not, uh, where we have mathematical scenarios in which Max Verstappen can clinch the World Drivers' Championship. Uh, and this scenario goes as such. So, for Verstappen to become champion at Singapore, uh, this would have to happen. Verstappen would need to finish first with the fastest lap, so acquire 26 points. Charles Leclerc needs to finish eighth or lower. And Sergio Perez needs to finish fourth or lower. That's one of the scenarios. Um, I guess not so impossible. Intriguing. Yeah. Because um, we could crown a champion. Those of you who follow the series uh, week to week, this this race is pivotal. And it's going to come down to, I would implore everybody to watch practice and qualifying because a lot of the story lines are set before the race happens. So let's see, you know, tire choice during uh, Q and, you know, who's going to end up on the pole. And even so, we've seen that not matter much. And we'll see. We also don't know, uh, you know, penalties are always in play. And we've seen guys who should be in the first three rows that end up, you know, starting back in the pack and that does have a huge uh, it makes a huge difference in how this is going to play out so I'm I'm excited to watch this race and I think that uh, it kind of speaks to when you get into the series it's not just the calendar dates or the the venue it's so much other there's so many other other factors at play here um first gp in 2008 uh we're going to do 61 laps uh, circuit length is is just a little over five kilometers a race distance will be 308 kilometers and the lap record is held by none other, none other than uh k mag in 2018, he ran a 141.9. So keep your uh, ears up during qualifying to see if, if that record is even, you know, close to being beat. Um, but what I'm looking at the circuit right now and very interesting track. I mean, there's this should be a fun one. Yeah, I hope so. Uh, street, street races usually tend to be decent uh unless it's monaco um but it'll just be nice to see cars on track again we kind of had a another break uh due to the cancellation of the russian gp so 
it'll be nice to, you know, we're now at the kind of the home stretch of the season. Um, so it'll be nice to have pretty much nonstop action from here on out. So that'll be exciting. Oh, with that, I guess we'll, um, shift gears, shift gears, shift gears into some footy. Uh, first on the docket, a foray into the Premier League from, well, almost two weeks ago now, but a match that I, I feel needs to be discussed because it was, it was a good one. Uh, this was played between Tottenham Hotspur and Leicester City. And, uh, okay, so Spurs lined up as follows. 3-4-2-1 formation. Hugo Lloris in goal with Longley, Eric Dyer, and Davidson Sanchez as the back three. Sessegnon, Bentancourt, Hoiberg and Ivan Perisic making up the midfield with Kulisevsky, Richarlison, and Harry Kane making up that attack. Leicester City in a, a formation you don't see that often, a 4-1-4-1. Danny Ward in goal. Uh, James Justin. Uh, let's see. Faust. Uh, he's a new, new player for them that I, I admittedly don't know a lot about um, Evans and Kastein, uh making up that back line. Wilfred and Didi as your holding midfielder with Barnes, Dewsbury Hall, Tielemans, and Madison as that midfield quad, and Patsendaka making up that attack. Uh, I mean, this was this was ninety minutes of pure fun, and this is one of those matches that. You know, uh, for someone trying to get another person into the sport a little more, I think this was a good uh, showcase of what the Premier League has to offer. Uh, eight goals uh, back and forth, at least until the end, but still a lot of goals being scored, a lot of action, uh, a great atmosphere as well. This is uh, this is why people, you know, watch the Premier League because it's it's – Usually week in and week out, a great display of the best talent and the best, some of the best matches in general. Um, and heading into this, Tottenham uh, were in real good shape. And I, it, I haven't looked at the table in a while, but I do know that Leicester City are in serious uh, trouble now um, with sitting on one point after this match and rock bottom of the table, uh, Brendan Rogers, I'm not sure the Western manager, not really sure how much time he has left. Um, but what were your initial thoughts on this one? Because there's well, a lot I've, to dissect. Yeah. I've got, got my, uh, bullet points here and we had an early, uh, PK for Lester. And there was a call that I hadn't seen before, keeper encroachment. Oh, yeah. So there was a lot of, uh, a lot happened early on here. So we have uh, that James Justin, 
penalty uh, tackled by Davidson Sanchez, which the referee deemed as a penalty. Uh, so initially, the penalty is taken and Lloris saves it, uh, which is always kind of fun to see. Uh, a, a goalkeeper saving a penalty is, you know, not that common. Uh, but rolled back. Yeah, and they started to crack down on this encroachment thing when the VAR era began, the video assistant referee. Essentially what encroachment is, and they tried to describe it a bit on the broadcast, a keeper has to keep one foot on the goal line at all times during the the taking of the penalty. Uh, Larice came off his line, basically jumped kind of forward and out to, you know, get a better advantage, a better angle on the ball to save it. Uh, that is illegal under the rules. Yeah, so that's illegal under the rules of soccer. So, yeah, a little bit of uh, a controversy there to start it out. Yeah, and I believe he went the same way the second uh, time, which, I mean, penalties are a mental battle, like a chess match between the person taking the penalties and the goalkeeper, and once that goalkeeper saves a penalty, but you have to retake it, I I feel like the goalkeeper's going to be in your head, like, and you're not going to have a ton of confidence when you strike it again, but... Uh, well done by Tielemans to get it the second time. Unfortunate for Lloris, who made a great save, but I mean, he was off his line, so you can't really do much about that. Uh, I don't have um, time stamps here, but then we had uh, Tottenham. Uh, Kane had a really good cross. A, a great cross. Yeah, the, and uh, that was in the eighth minute, in a, in a which made it 1-1. Game. And this, uh, there was a serious issues for Leicester, serious issues with Leicester in regards to set pieces. Um, I think they give up at least two set-piece goals in this match, and there were two or three other real good goal-scoring chances for Tottenham off of set pieces. Um, and it really goes to show that a team that can can create set piece chances and then create great opportunities off of that are always going to be very dangerous to play against and will oftentimes, you know, win because if you can score off of set pieces, that eliminates the constant need to score goals otherwise and when teams are really vulnerable on set pieces it's kind of you kind of just end up shooting yourself in the foot because you'd like to think that a sound defense can prevent set piece goals but if you can't do anything against it you're in yeah you're in dire straits and and Lester ended up being in pretty dire straits later on Yeah, so again, not timestamp, but then Tottenham 
uh, as a, a another yep, that was opportunity in the twenty first minute, and he's successful. Um, then, yeah, uh, so that Madison that was the forty first minute in. After that. A real back and forth in this one, really end to end action, and you you didn't didn't see any quit from Leicester there. Once they went a goal down, at least in the first half. Uh, interestingly enough, before that James Madison goal, uh, another set piece goal actually goes in for Tottenham, but is called off due to a handball. Uh, again, just doubling down on that point that you know serious issues from Leicester uh, on set pieces and I don't you, you've got to have those taken care of otherwise you're in in trouble um, yeah so two two at halftime and I'm just trying to do my best to recall this match yeah I have I have um, my second uh, half bullet points. Um, again, not time stamp, but uh, Tottenham number 30 scores his first goal for the team. Yeah. And so, okay, here we So this was in the 47th minute, and this is when Wilfred and Didi gives the ball away, essentially, to Bentancur, uh, who was new last year from Juventus in Italy. Um, and, you know, he it's basically a hospital pass right to him. And he brings it, he slots it home pretty easily. A lot of, um, a lot of talk about the Leicester goalkeeper not playing all that well. Uh, he doesn't make... I don't know if he makes really any saves in this match. Uh, certainly none that were of any real substance. Um, but Leicester, you know, at that point are down 3-2. Um, but you didn't see really... You know, they didn't quit, essentially. Um, Madison, James Madison, uh, passes one to Daka in the 58th minute, but that chance ends up being saved. Uh, and then I have in my notes that the, the shit basically hits the fan for them after the 70th minute. Only, only by one... Yeah, Son one Hyung-min, uh, uh, the Korean lad. Uh, this guy has been terrorizing other... Premier League defenses for five to six years now. Uh, and he's been an ambassador of the Asian game for a while now. Definitely the best uh, player out of that region by a solid margin. Uh, he, I, I would always get upset, uh, you know, supporting Man City because he would always, you know, pull something amazing out of his hand and he's so like he's always smiling the fans love him and he seems like a nice guy but when he scores against you man is it the most annoying shit in the world i don't know why but i, I will i will mention this uh the premier league 
they play clean ball. Okay. So when penalties shall be called, they will be called. And I'm, I'm kind of jumping ahead of myself here, but that game, USA versus Saudi. And I know it was a friendly match and it's not the intention of the officials to yellow card or throw people out, but there were many, many infractions in that game that were All right, uh, we're back because we ran into technical issues. Again, there might be a few minutes where my co-host's audio just doesn't exist uh, because so. I didn't realize that his audio wasn't working for a few minutes. But, you know, we're not sponsored and... Uh, you know, we're not live in a studio. Uh, I don't have professional editors. Um, so we're trying our best here, damn it. Uh, basically, if there's a few minutes where, you know, you can't hear my co-host, we were discussing officiating, right? And you were talking about yeah. Yeah, yeah. how... Uh, differences in how games are officiating officiated uh just a well you know make or break your experience versus and uh, i'm sure we'll we'll get to this as a point but um for me it's hard it's hard's not the right word but watching the Tottenham versus Leicester game and it was very well played very well officiated versus the friendly match uh, USA versus Saudi where apparently when it's a friendly match there will not be penalties called when they shall be or should Yeah, yeah. The officiating in friendlies are usually leave a lot to be desired when it comes to that. Um, and you know, we'll talk about it. But there are a lot of things that just get let go because you know it's not a quote unquote competitive fixture. Um, but ju- I just you know to put a bow on this this. Uh, Tottenham versus Leicester discussion. Uh, Leicester have have had a leaky defense all season, really, so far at least. Um, and when you know one of the best attackers in the world, and Son Hyung Min comes in, you know he's going to wreak havoc on a team that has essentially very little defensive discipline at this moment in time. Uh, 13 minutes is what it took 
for him to get three goals, his hat trick. And all of them were pretty damn impressive. Uh, the first one, he makes a beautiful run into the box and scores. Oh, well, actually, it's outside of the box um, and scores more, oh, a banger is what I would describe it as from outside the box. Uh, the second one, he is fed a ball from Harry Kane, who then strikes it perfectly into the back of the net. Lester defense, nowhere to be found. Correct. And um, then just two minutes later in the 86, he was, makes it three for his hat trick, which after VAR, VAR review, uh, he was awarded. Onside versus hat-trick. offside can change the whole complexion of the game, and they made the right call. Yeah. A lot of people complain about even just the implementation of VAR uh, and just growing up on mostly American sports. Video review has been My a part of how we have is, viewed sports for quite a while now. I think that um, all games, whether it be baseball or American football or soccer, should be played in the moment. Um, I've I've never really been a fan of high def looking at somebody's toe or an inch, or a football move, or whatever you want to call it, um, I think it kind of takes away from the the game itself. I think it should be eyes on the field. What Whatever that official saw is what the call should be. Uh, we're way past that at this point, and now we have, you know, high definition we have super slow motion we can change the trajectory of a baseball game or a football game or a soccer game by technology and that kind of it sucks in a way and and sometimes it's great because if you're rooting for a team and it the call goes your way then you know good for us but i i i've never subscribed to the fact that we should be looking at stuff at that high of a level but that's where we're at you know it kind of and i i grew up in the 70s and 80s where there were there wasn't any chance of that when the umpire made a call yeah. on the plate that was the call when a running back ran down the sideline and maybe his the toe of his shoe went out, but that was up to the people who were on the field to visually make that call. So I, I guess we're past that at this point, but Yeah. Mhm. I I think a lot of it takes the, the 
a lot of why people get so upset is because of how long these reviews take and it just kind of takes the excitement and the fun out of it so they can stuff more commercial shit down your face (laughs) instead of just playing the natural sport so Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I I certainly understand that side of things. You know, I I I really don't like when reviews take four or five minutes, and really no one does, especially in soccer when you know uh, you're not going to get that time back really. Yeah, very well. The, yeah, sure. The there's added time, like but it's American not baseball a true indication of how much stoppage we really had. You know, and having uh, not a fake, but in, in a, a realized strike zone on TV, where you know when a guy throws a pitch, yes it was in the box on TV or out of the box, but ultimately that is the umpire's call behind the catcher. And it just kind of, to me, it takes away from the, the pureness a bit, but I just, I'm, I'm waxing a bit poetic. (laughs) I don't think it's ever going to go back to that, but you know, and, and and if European football is yeah. starting to realize that VAR sure. is, well, it's a, is a thing, no, and obviously but it is. It, well, welcome to you know sports as I've seen it the last ten years. Yeah. Yep. And that's, you know, that's where we're headed. But uh, I think we've, you know, we've done our due diligence in terms of that topic. And we've got to, unfortunately, we have to talk about the United States men's national team to shut down the show here. And they played in a friendly against Saudi Arabia on Tuesday, uh, and this is what this was the last 90 minutes of action we saw uh, until they play Wales uh, Monday, November 21st, 2 p.m. Eastern, in the first game of the World Cup for them. And I'm thinking it, I know you are probably thinking it, uh, especially well, since this uh, was really your first As time kind of watching them. Um, the, uh, that was bad. Uh, that was not good. And soccer. I am a little concerned. Uh, my first, but what say you? Honestly, my first uh, reaction to that particular game, uh, I, 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 did, I was not aware of friendly matches. Um, so when I saw an empty stadium, first I was a bit taken back i was like okay so what the fuck is this <laughs> what are we doing here <laughs> uh there's a thousand people in a thirty-one thousand uh seat stadium 
and it was completely empty. And so the first couple mm-hmm. of minutes, I'm trying to acclimate myself. I'm like, okay, what? Okay, so what? What is this? Yeah. Um, not, I don't want to go too far back into what a friendly game is, but I, I was unaware this happened. Uh, yeah. But also, as the game progressed, I was also intrigued by the fact that they were playing as hard as they were okay. in front of no fans. Um, that was interesting to me. Um, and I have a, I have a bullet point. Is this a practice game? Is it a, mm-hmm. a game of, okay, so are we letting all of our opponents and there were, obviously there were scouts there, right? From other, other give me a little background on why this happens and what the point of these matches are. Yeah, there were. So usually um, international games take place in windows um, during international breaks, of course. And outside of a tournament that they're playing in, like the World Cup, uh, like the Gold Cup, which is uh, CONCACAF, which is North America's tournament, or something like that. Outside of a tournament, uh, you would play, you would schedule friendlies against other teams. And they're basically 90-minute tests to see what players... uh, to see how your players are, are playing together, who is better than someone else in a certain position. Uh, it's usually a good opportunity to play young guys that have never played for the national team. Uh, the idea of friendlies is basically you play who you want, um, if you can schedule them. Uh, there's really no stakes. Um, theoretically, there's no stakes. I would argue there's a lot of stakes in this one, but some bullet points here. Yeah, there's I'll no stakes. Uh, you can make as many subs as you want. A glorified scrimmage. Let's be honest. Scoring or what have you, but uh, seemed a little aggressive on the the Saudi team side. Um. For a friendly match, there was there were several notable fouls committed by them. Yeah, I think basically waved off. This, this, yeah. Yeah. So the officiating was not that great in this match. Which okay. I can live with that. It's friendly. Uh, I think a lot of this aggressiveness from Saudi Arabia comes from the system that they play, uh, which is to sit back and wait for a a counterattack, essentially, Um, basically inviting pressure. And then, you know, if they don't like how 
a U.S. possession is going, uh, you foul. You bring your opponent down. Um, and also, uh, on paper, this U.S. team is, is probably a lot better than um, the Saudi Arabian team, although I'm looking at the lineup here, and you're missing... Anthony Robinson, who would be your starter in Qatar if he's healthy. Uh, you're missing Yunus Musa in the midfield, who, if healthy, so would start in Qatar. And you're missing Timothy Weah um, on the wings, who, if healthy, would start um, in Qatar. But um, nonetheless, still very... Yeah. Uh, Pretty much. I'm trying to think uh, what the word is. <laughs> Nobody really stood down in this game. It's it, it seemed like it was a game of, you know, well-played soccer. Even though I kept thinking, well, we're not going to show all of our cards or all of our best offense or best defense in this game and am I correct in in assuming that that we're kind of shadowing a bit you know not really showing not really showing what our our real potential is I think this game Well, absolutely not on the field, um, and part of that comes from some of the players that Greg Berhalter, the coach, is allowing to still play for this team. I'm looking at Aaron Long at center back. He's horrible. He's horrible. Um, I don't ever want to see him play for this men's national team again. Uh, and and I'm and I'm speaking from someone I I think I've missed one or two games in like five years at this point. And I don't say that, you know, to stand on some high horse. I'm just saying, I I think I know the players that I want to see at this point and the players that can br play the best soccer for this team. Um, Aaron Long is not that guy. Anytime he's on the ball, uh, he seems to make the worst decision possible and frankly, he's not that great of a defender. Um, so I don't think the U.S. was playing at all its best soccer. Uh, and I really hope not. Otherwise, it'll be a quick three and out at the World Cup for us. Um, there, This whole camp was a total bust for the national team. They had lost to Japan a few days before. Uh Probably well, no, probably a slightly weaker lineup that they put out, but still, you sh should not lose to Japan. And I understand it's a friendly, and you don't want to react too strongly to these. But I just didn't really see a lot where I can confidently say I am well, happy as, with as, the product as, on the field, and no, I'm confident as, as in this team heading into newbie. the World Cup. I don't know what a, you uh, saw, uh, and a youngster there was the nothing egregious. Cup. 
scenario. I, I don't know if it was a, a case of we're not showing all of our cards here. And even with the match earlier with Japan, we're still not showing all of our cards. Um, I have decent hope that the the team that they field, you know, in a it, what is it, in a month or so, that yeah. yeah. So I I I leave it up to you and um, less than two months. I think we're at fifty three days or something. Not impressive, and and even the commentators kind of shared the same opinion that basically this team better get its shit together at some point. Yeah. It's <laughs> the problem is this was the window where the shit was supposed to get together. Uh, this because this was you know the dress rehearsal, and it's different this time around because you have a winter World Cup, and you have to keep playing your club season up until a week before yeah. the World Cup. Usually, you know, you'd play your last friendly before the World Cup, like nine days before your first World Cup game. We're doing that almost two months before the first World Cup, so you know, yeah. honest. Honestly, and I hope, uh, you know, we get to the World Cup, we win our first game, and no one gives a damn about what happened in September, you know? And there's a, a scenario in which that happens because a lot can change from well, now. I also and have you a would here hope that, that uh, the surface you know, looked a little we put in a much better 90 so minutes in the World Cup. Into it, obviously, sake. I think it does. But I've watched enough shit football games that are played on baseball fields in yeah, the stages of the NFL to understand that it know, does that for sure that turf. yeah yeah both both games this window were played on surfaces that leave quite a bit uh to desire um second half, not only uh, uh you know with the surface but just the, the play the that half, it, but... it it that it provided essentially um there was a yellow card uh in the 57th minute no the, i mean there's not a whole lot in terms of what happened in this game card. it's more it of the, the storylines um Abdullah Amid, I think, was the player. But again, going back to yeah. the fact that these refs aren't going to call normal fouls as they should. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, I don't have a lot to, to say really about this game. Um, 
other than the fact that it really annoyed me how kind of sloppy the U.S. looked and they didn't score a goal this window. They had two shots on goal in two games. That's worrying, essentially, uh, especially because the striker position uh, has been an issue for a long time now. And we were hoping that heading into the World Cup, we would have a definitive guy that you would go, yep, he's the starter. We don't have that. Uh, Ricardo Pepe starts in this one and essentially does nothing. And he hasn't scored a goal for the U.S. uh, since October of last year. Um, And Jesus Ferreira comes in, who if I were a betting man, I'd bet it starts... uh, against Wales, and he doesn't do anything either. Um, There's something I want to mention that uh, there's a player we have named Jordan Peefock who was not called into this camp at all, and he is a striker. And he has played for us on a number of different occasions but hasn't been called up since he missed a chance against Mexico in qualifying in March, uh, but he currently is playing for Union Berlin in Germany, who are atop of the Bundesliga, and he has two goals and three assists or something like that, um, and he made a move to Union Berlin this summer, uh, and I, I hope that he makes the plane to Qatar. Uh, I thought it was very questionable that he wasn't in this camp to begin with, um, and I, I wrote down my, um, my, who I would start against Wales, assuming everyone's healthy. Um, and then I just compared it to the lineup of this one. So Matt Turner in goal, and then you have Anthony Robinson at left back, not in this camp cause he was hurt. I would have Chris Richards who plays for Crystal Palace in the premier league not in this camp due to an injury, Walker Zimmerman and Serginio Dest. And then I would have Yunus Musa, who wasn't in this camp uh, due to injury as well. See a theme uh, there. Weston McKenney and Tyler Adams, who both played in both games. Uh, and then I have Timothy Weah, who was not in this camp. And then I would have either... Jordan Peefock or Josh Sargent at striker, and then Captain America Christian Pulisic. Um, so I guess the optimistic part of me goes we're missing a, quite a few key players. And, you know, if they're healthy and so, ready to go, I guess for Qatar, I think we'll be in a lot better shape. You is, so I guess there is that to, to speak how upon. How do you feel about this? the coach i mean is is this a well coached team uh is that going to be a stumbling point during this world cup and my the other question i have not knowing is when was the last qualification of the u.s team for the world cup Uh, so I'll get the short answer out of the way. 
the last time we qualified was 2014, so we missed 2018. Uh, we made it to the round of 16 and lost 2-0 to Belgium. And uh, that, that was a hell of a team, Belgium. Uh, their so-called golden generation. Uh, so that was the last time eight years ago that was in Brazil. Um, and just to set the record straight, in the modern era, um, the the U.S. have missed, like, that's the one World Cup they've missed. Uh, missing a World Cup is disastrous, especially in a country like this, who soccer is probably your fourth most popular sport, um, because people forget. And then, which I've been trying to fight forever now, is that, oh, they missed the World Cup. They're shit. They must suck. They must just be terrible. And they must have just sucked forever before that. So, no, that's not the case. But um, the coach, and I don't want to be here all night, so I'll make it quick. I don't like him. Greg Berhalter uh, was hired by his brother. A little nepotism there. Um, Really no resume prior to this that would say you deserve to take over this team. Uh, Interestingly, uh, MLS Cup appearance with the Columbus Crew, which they lost in 2015. Um, The problem I have with Greg Berhalter is he clearly has favorites. He clearly has guys that he will not let go of. One of those right now is Aaron Long. Aaron Long has sucked since he's come back from injury. Um, and he still gets called in, and I I would bet my house that he's going to start against Wales. Um, and we've seen this with guys in the past that he just will not let go of. And then on the flip side, like Jordan Peefock, he missed one chance against Mexico, and he hasn't been back since. Uh, John Brooks, who's another center back, who moved from Wolfsburg, a very respectable German club, who he was like the player, like one of their best players, to Benfica, one of the best clubs in Portugal, um, and gets consistent minutes. He got the axe too, and and he was one of two players other than DeAndre Edwin who have World Cup experience on this team. He got the axe for really no reason. And when you ask Greg Berhalter uh, why, you never get a straight answer. So the roster building is a problem for me. Uh, He doesn't really have a system of play at all, despite how he talks about he wants to call it players that fit his system. Um, and I think there were a number of times leading up to this World Cup where he could have been fired and wasn't. Um, I will say that getting us to a World Cup uh, is a good achievement, obviously. Uh, and I, you can't take that away from him. Uh, he has a great record against Mexico, which you can't take away out uh, because that's our best or that's our biggest rival, and he's won a couple trophies, which is nice, but overall, I I don't think his tenure has been that great. Um, 
I think the his legacy well, will be I'm defined by what happens this World Cup. So for the first time that's in my life the for the somewhat short game. answer. I think it's gonna be a great uh, it will give me something to do other than watch the Browns. Yeah. And yeah, it, it it's going to be awesome, and I'm looking forward to the end of the F1 series and talking about. Well, that's always a good next thing. Next year, I think it's going to be awesome. So, just a lot of a lot of stuff, a lot of stuff to cover. Okay. Yeah, there's a lot to look forward to. Get out of here. In the meantime, uh, I think we need to shut this one down. 100%. Uh, Looking forward to Singapore this weekend. And we'll have more action on the, the pitch as well. Associate producers Jimmy Hill and Gavin Ritter. This has been Tackling the Chicane. We'll see you guys next time.